Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, a new hero with a familiar name. Fight to survive in a far future of danger and wonder and the monsters of Avalon. Plus, sentient AI super tanks, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I'm Bain Associate Editor David Afshirod, sitting in for your regular host, Tony Daniel. Tony will actually be joining me a little later in the podcast as part of our roundtable discussion about the new anthology, World Breakers, which is out now in trade paperback and ebook from Bain. World Breakers is a new collection of stories about sentient AI super tanks, and there's something to love for everyone. But first, the news. The Bain mass market paperbacks have hit bookstore shelves this August. Let's take a look at what we have. First up, Days of Burning, Days of Wrath by Tom Crapman. A new Carrera rises. When Patricio Carrera's family was murdered by Salafist terrorists, the assassins probably didn't expect to create an implacable conqueror who would stop at nothing to wreak his revenge. But that is what they accomplished. Now, after decades of war and preparation for war in Carrera's adopted homeland of Balboa, the last of the Taran Union Expeditionary Force collapses. Amidst the chaos of war, a new leader arises. He is Hamilcar, Carrera's young son. Hamilcar stands poised to obliterate the last enemy base on his planet. Revenge was always going to be his, but now Carrera may finally get what he least expected, renewal. Next up, we have In the Palace of Shadow and Joy by DJ Butler. The ad read, bar desperate for apprentice, rogue with sideline insurance seek work, preferably as good guys. Indrajit Twang is the 427th epic poet of his people, the only person alive to carry their entire epic history and mythology in his head. His folk are dwindling in number, and if he can't find a successor in the great city of Kish, their story will disappear with them. Fix grew up a foundling on the ancient streets of Kish and is making his living as a mercenary. The woman he loves married someone else, and Fix has plunged into buying and selling risk on the black market to forget his broken heart. Now Indrajit and Fix have been hired by a powerful risk merchant to protect the life of spoiled opera star Ilsa without peer. Soon, Indrajit and Fix find themselves hunted by multiple mercenary squads and targeted by some of the most powerful men in Kish. But it may turn out to be their enemies who are headed for a deadly reckoning. For nobody knows the hidden ins and outs of the heart of this world, a place known as the Palace of Shadow and Joy, better than Indrajit and Fix. And finally, Beowulf's Children by Larry Niven, Jerry Purnell, and Stephen Barnes. Some 20 years have passed since the passengers and crew of the Starship Geographic established a colony on the hostile alien world of Avalon. In that time, a new generation has grown up in the peace and serenity of the island paradise of Camelot, ignorant of the great Grindel Wars fought between their parents and grandparents and the monstrous inhabitants of Avalon. Now, under the influence of a charismatic leader, a group of young rebels make for the mainland, 
intent on establishing their own colony, sure that they can vanquish any foe that should stand in their way. But they will soon discover that Avalon holds darker secrets still. And that's it for the news. Now on to my conversation with Tony Daniel, Christopher Rocchio, Lou Berger, Wynn Spencer, and David Weber about the new anthology, World Breakers. All right, I am here with uh, one of the editors of World Breakers, the uh, new anthology out from Bain Books. Tony Daniel is, uh, has got it right there all about AI super tanks. Uh, Tony's got a story in the anthology, which he uh, co-edited with Christopher Rocchio. Uh, and I'm also here with some of the contributors who wrote stories for the book, uh, Mr. David Weber, uh, Wynn Spencer, and Lou Berger. So thank you all very much for coming on and talking about World Breakers today. Uh, so Tony, I guess let's start with you since you uh, put this thing together or, one, or half the team that put it together. Uh, I think when uh maybe when the wider world hears ai super tanks they think what in the world is that but when bain readers hear ai super tanks of course uh this is a connotation of keith lomer and the bolos uh but this we should say is inspired by it this is not a bolos anthology um so where did this uh, idea for these things come from and how did you guys go about uh putting it together well um so tony weiskopf publisher at bain um she has this quote um, that she has pinned to, for years, she's had pinned to her office wall. Um, and it is a note from Jim Bain to Keith Lahmer um, that sort of uh, evoked the, uh, the, the creation of the bolos, which are like AI super tanks. They always have a, and they're always, a, I'll let David explain more about this because he wrote the introduction to the to an entire collection, both Anna and a bolo novel. I think. He can but fact anyway. check you, yeah. Um, the, the, yeah, but the, this was um, a letter that um, that Jim Bain wrote to Keith Lawmer and, and Tony's got it. It says, um, Lawmer was asking what he should write next and, and Bain says, I would like something that hints at the profound erudition possessed by the author and is driven by a plot imbued with the deepest philosophical insight into the essential tragedy of the human condition as it is and places it in the most pathetic contrast to what could in a better world be our birthright, something with scope, something with sentient tanks. <laughs> um, oh man, oh man, I could hear him, hear him saying that. So um, Tony said, well, you know, people just love this um, erudition and scope. So let's do that and then put in and throw in some of these sentient tanks. And so Christopher and I um, set forth to do that collect uh, some great stories from some great writers. And we, I think we succeeded marvelously. Um, David might want to, we, we, we don't want to say that this is uh, a Bolo anthology because it is yeah. not, but I would, if David could tell us, give us a little background, I'd, I'd love it because I know he, he likes the Bolos. Well, I think that what Lawmer nailed in, in, the, um, in the whole Bolo concept. And I almost think it was an accident on his part that he didn't realize what he had done until after it was done, if you follow me. Um, he created a sentient being, the product of human ingenuity and engineering 
which in many respects is better than its creator. Okay, this is not Skynet. This is not the cybernetic intelligence that decides it knows better. It's going to, it's going to take over. This is a cybernetic intelligence which is more human in many respects than the humans who built it. Um, and one of the things that happens in almost every Bolo story is the Bolo dies. Not always. I did, I did one old, I did a Bolo novel, Old Soldiers, in which the Bolo lives and the commander dies. Um, but the, um, essentially the, the, the Bolo novels, this, uh, and, and I think this transfers over into world breakers in, in a lot of ways. The Bolo novels examine the best of the human condition by doing it through the lens of a non-human being. Okay, I remember in one of the, um, it's chronologic. <laughs> Keith Lauber was, was, was magnificently untrammeled by issues of chronology and continuity when he did the Bolo novels. They just jump all over the place. Uh, but I remember the, the novel about the Bolo who confronted by overwhelming odds, you know, fighting by himself, charges the enemy and they break and they run. And he's the very first self-aware Bolo. And he's, what he's done is irrational. It saves the entire nation that built him and everything else, but it's fundamentally irrational because if they hadn't broken and run, he would have been destroyed. He couldn't have fought any longer. And so his, his psychologist designer is saying, you know, they're gonna shut the project down. You know, why, why did you do this? And he says, wait, wait, I know. It's because you had all the psychology files in there and you knew they'd break. And the Bolo says, no. And he says, then why did you do it? And the Bolo says, for the honor of the regiment. Okay. Um, that is just an absolutely marvelous story that encapsulates a great deal about the Bolos. And the other, um, the other Lawmer novel that I think really encapsulates it is Relic. The, uh, the the not the novel the short story uh, about the bolo in the town square in in the jungle planet where the last battle of the war was fought and they've sent somebody from the bolo brigade to burn out its personality center because it's old it's it's dangerous and the folks in town won't let the guy do it because he's their johnny is their mascot you know he's kind of the village idiot kind of thing, you know, until it turns out there's still one enemy war machine left and it comes for the village and the Bolo takes it out and suffers, you know, lots of damage for what's left. And he's back in the square and the mayor of the town tells the Bolo officer, he says, the Denikram officer, you have, you know what you have to do. And the guy's more or less, I thought you told me, he says, that thing is dangerous. Okay. And so the, 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 the guy goes to it and he stands in front of the Bolo and he says, you know why I'm here. And the Bolo says, I compute that you have come to destroy me. And the guy says, you could, you could, you could get away, you know, you could, you could run. And the Bolo says, that is not my function. And it is better to die at the hands of a friend. Okay. Those are kind of the bookend in my mind 
of Bolo's of, of Lamer's concept of the Bolo's. And the stories. We wanted that for the anthology, mm -hmm. and uh, and and David provided an excellent example of of that genre of the sentient thing. But we also wanted he, we we threw it out there to the writers to do whatever they wanted to with it, and um, and some and and all of them aware of the legacy. Some of them mm -hmm. reacting to it. Some of them doing twists on it. Some of them doing humorous takes, and some of them doing um, you know very serious uh, takes, yep. and some of them being doing very allegorical takes like me um <laughs> so uh we we got a extremely strong variety of stories that that um really come at this from all the sorts mm -hmm. of cool angles um i think Lommer would have been happy to read it i think i think certainly You're, you're right that these stories go in a lot of directions. Um, I mean, it's not, it's, I'm not saying that the anthology doesn't have a unified context because it definitely does. I think good anthologies do. Uh, but the freedom that the, that the authors had to go in their own directions. I think it really added to the, the richness of, of the composition. Well, let's, let's talk about some of those uh, compositions with you folks here. Um, Lou, your story is, uh, let me find it here, Humanity's Fist. Um, and this is your first uh, time, you, meant you were, we were talking before in the Bain Anthology. So welcome to the, the Bain Free Radio Hour and to the Bain family. Um, I just wondered if you could talk about um, your experience writing this, how, how that came about, and uh, sort of just give the listeners an idea of what this, what this take you had on these, uh, the take on the tanks that you had in your story. My tank take. When Tony was right, uh, when Tony Weisskopf posted that beautiful that beautiful uh, quote from Jim Bain, I had written directly under it. I said, you know, this kind of sounds like a theme for an antho. And she said, wheels are turning. And then like <laughs> a couple of weeks later, she's like, okay, I've got it. I've got the editors. I'm like, good for you. Well done. And I had said earlier, I said, I would love to write for that thinking there's no way Tony's going to invite me to write for Bain. None. I mean, I know her as a friend and as a, a mentor at a distance because we um, I've been on two writing cruises which i think i spent more time cruising than than writing um with her and um i got to know her pretty well and we had some great conversations i like her i think she's a great person i just i've never written for bain and i had never read any of the bolo stories and so uh, when i saw that that quote i thought my, my brain latched onto this part of the the, quote, the essential tragedy of the human condition Right, as it is. What is it that we do? I took away. What is it that we do to ourselves that just makes no sense that a sentient AI would not do because it doesn't make sense? What are we so enmeshed with our existences about that? And, and I came up with we kill each other. And that's just not, that's not rational. That's not logical. Especially if you know how deep and varied your life is and your experiences, all the things you spent your life developing and learning how to do and to eradicate that with a, a bullet to the head. It's just, 
it seems like such a waste. And I think that that's, that was the core tenet I took away from my story, Humanity's Fist, which one of my Bade readers pointed out could be misinterpreted. And I said, no. And yeah, <laughs> so it's not a verb, it's, it's a noun. So anyway, that's, that's the thing that, that struck me as, as the most important part of Jim's quote. Have an element of humor, but not that kind of humor. I'm sorry. <laughs> Sorry. yeah so could you give us like just this just kind of i always say like maybe tease your the teaser for your story as far as um plot or the central i mean you we i guess we have your central theme but the central idea so this takes place this is a long dormant uh tank that uh is reawoken um, it, it starts off screaming into atmosphere, dropping, joining up with his three fellows and, and taking off across the, the battle scarred landscape, smoking piles of rubble left and right. And uh, it's four distinct personalities in, in these four different tanks. And they, they could not be more different from one another. And they could not be more in love with each other as, as partners, as friends, as confidants, is something deeper than what we can actually have because they can hear each other's thoughts and they can transmit their viewpoints and they use each other unconsciously to triangulate uh, attack vectors. And, and I think that they are, um, as individual tanks, they're lethal, but as four synchronized lethal tanks, they're they are unbeatable until they are. And so our hero, I call him the professor, in this particular story um, is buried under a sandstone cliff that collapses atop him. And then he is out for 80 something years, but when he awakens, he doesn't know it. And so what happens after that is more of an insight into, I think, Jim Bain's original quote, and the things that were important to that tank weren't the same things that were important to his human creators. And I'll just leave the rest of that in the dark. We have been Someone has crashed our Zoom meeting in the lower right, well, my right I corner. I saw that. Uh, yeah, I so finally got it to work. Christopher Sorry. Rocchio has just learned how to use a computer today. We want to congratulate him. Okay. No, he was having trouble with Zoom, and uh, we, we are glad that he is here. He is a co-editor of the book with Tony, and he, um, like Tony, he also is a contributor. Um, so Christopher, welcome. Glad you yeah. glad you got whatever you did. It worked. Were you? I like had to honest? reinstall everything. You just so. hit the computer in it. No, okay. No, that's how I fix my car. Yeah. But, <laughs> um, Tony, did you want to say anything more about Lou's story? I looked like you were maybe winding up, but maybe not. If not, we can move on. Well, I mean, uh, the thing that I, I really like about it is the 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 sense. I love these uh, stories where an AI has been out for a long time and slowly it, and it awakens in altered circumstances and it it i mean i mean think about it if you suddenly awoke uh after you just like had been switched off um and you think it's moments ago but it's actually 87 years later and everything's changed um and the um the necessity of adapting to a new world at the same time um knowing the threats that you faced, you're in the middle of a battle. Um, and, uh, you know, you're going to interpret threats of, of the moment that you find yourself awake in uh, as, as, as lethal and very perilous. And perhaps they are, perhaps they aren't. And the ability to adapt and, and not uh, just destroy everything might come into play. Um, 
or it might not. <laughs> so <laughs> maybe you will just, or maybe a little bit of both, which is what happens in this story. So it's it's cool um, in that in in that sort of like uh, you know what the heck is going on um, and slowly uh, figuring out what it is, um, what what mystery box we've opened, what present we're in now. Um, it's a revelation story as well as an action story. All right, well, speaking of, um, I guess we would say, uh, tanks waking up after an indeterminate period, I think we have another one of those as well uh, in Wynn Spencer's story. Um, when were you, uh, when you were asked to do this, so, um, I'll, again, same kind of thing, if you would just talk about your story a little bit, but um, you're, you've got an added complication in yours where not only is this tank not sure when, but also the war was sort of an inter interdimensional situation. So there, there's an added level of confusion about what's going on here. Yeah, um, when they, you guys, first contacted me, I was like, are you sure? Me, AI, <laughs> tank? Um, but I had a collision of two things. One of which is my husband was talking about how they're training new AIs on computer games, where they're basically just dropping them into games and letting them learn the game and then compete basically. And they're doing amazing things. Uh, and along that line, they're also um, are now teaching AI how to write stories. And he's shared some of the examples with me and it's quite, quite, quite frightening. You can almost see the future rolling over you. Uh, but the other thing was I had gotten addicted to Minecraft YouTubers um, where there were doing crazy insane things while building stuff. And uh, I kind of collided the two together and basically had a tank that was in the middle of a war, but had been trained on Minecraft. And it wakes up and the only uh, mission objectives it can find is this remnant of a Minecraft game. And so it's like, okay, punch trees. I'm not sure how I'm supposed to punch, but I'll collect wood. Yes, I can do this. And it just builds from there, um, uh, reinterpreting the world wrongly. Um, and then ending up back in the war with you know, an enemy that, you know, it's like, okay, I've been operating on the wrong set, but I know this, so. What is the Ender Dragon? Yes, that is the question that yeah. will be answered in this story. <laughs> yes. I've always liked all the unanswered questions of that game because they never really explain anything. They just drop it into you. And as a writer, you're like, well, why do you have these villagers that will trade for emeralds? And why do you occasionally find them locked up in cells, zombified? And why is there this zombie wave? And it, what about all those chickens? Yeah. <laughs> yes, there's that. And one of the things that I really like about Wynn's story is that it's a perfect example of um, Kant's critique of pure reason, which is um, 
that the uh <laughs> your face when you said that okay continue. <laughs> sorry <laughs> the way that we conceptualize things the way that we organize the world can determine the the experience that we have so we have all this stuff happening to us but the way that we uh, are built to organize it um sort of determines what the the sensory data that we come in how we interpret it so um even though there is a real world out there um, things are also influenced by the categories uh, that we apply to experience. And in Wynn's case, it's pretty humorous, I think. Although, you know, it's weird, weird ass Wynn Spencer humor. So. I, I, There's like, some other kind. I, mean, <laughs> <you know. laughs> I was kind of like going, I emailed back going, okay, this is my idea for the short. Is it okay? And they're like, well, we kind of picked you to be the curveball. And I'm like, incoming curveball. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it worked out great. Um, and the the there's also the uh, the grumbly villager character. What is it? He's her name is it Damn it, right? Is that the oh that chicken is damn it. The chicken is damn it. Yeah. Um, the, uh, <laughs> because that's what the, the villager calls it, right? Is that <laughs> Uh, whenever it sees it basically the scientists that were training him on the games back at the base which is actually on another world um the scientists had a habit of you saying oh damn it damn it and it's that tone of voice that she, when he interacts with this one chicken it's kind of like i I understand now that feeling. <laughs> and this chicken triggers it every time I have to deal with it. Um, it's things like I launch my drones and the chicken pulls it out of the sky and runs off with it. Damn it. <laughs> um, but the tank's name is Anvil, right? Is that was, yes. I seem to remember that, yeah. Which I think is a great tank name. So, and I just had fun with the whole, the whole thing. The damn it was supposed to be number five because he has one, two, three, and four. But, you That's know, right. at oh, that yeah. point in time, it did something to so piss it off. It's like, no, okay, now it's damn it. One, um, two, three, four, and damn it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and he has existential angst over the fact that he really doesn't understand why things are named things that they're named. So he's not sure he's actually doing this naming thing right. Um, There's a lot of meta stuff going on in this story because yeah. it's based on people critiquing Minecraft, not on Minecraft. <laughs> <laughs> or at least some of the sensibility is, right? That's the, yeah. Yeah. I just basically had a lot of fun with it. And, mm -hmm. uh, and then was like, here, uh, I hope it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's silly in parts. <laughs> but the bolo is, I mean, the bolo, the sentient tank is very, it is. Don't call it a bolo. That's right. <laughs> it does hue to uh, Lomarian sort of lines uh, that David was describing in the end. It, it is a sort of noble beast. Have any of you ever discussed the design of Ogre with Steve Jackson? It was designed to be Bolo. 
he actually has a map somewhere that has bolo on it and the guy he was working for he keeps saying are you sure Lommer's going to be okay with this are you sure yeah yeah i got it covered i got it covered he gets all the design work done and i say yeah well you know the negotiations fell through so he's got all the design work that he did in the game so he's like okay what do i do with it now so he just flips it and makes the sentient tank the bad guy Work beautifully, <laughs> you know. But, you know it's just Someone else things. did that. Well, I was going to say well, that was could segue. not have been a better uh, tee it up. Uh, so, Christopher Rocchio, uh, your story is set in your Sun Eater World. Uh, what is it? Yeah. Sun Eater Chronicles series saga, whatever it is. Uh, uh, I've just been saying the Sun Eater and making everyone else fill in the blanks. Make me. <laughs> stumble on it yeah, uh, it's fun. in your sun eater world so set that up for us and how this fits in but then also yes you did something uh a little bit i don't know anyways <laughs> which is that uh you have your ai tank is the bad guy in this story and you know actually you were not here but david was talking about sort of the the ethos of the bolo with bolos which this is not but still uh being <laughs> humanity but in a way better but i wonder if uh you know you maybe didn't take it that direction and how that worked out yeah i didn't get that memo right because uh, <laughs> um well they weren't uh, bolos i mean yeah, you know. the, right, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah i went the other way with the uh the the, the pathos line from uh from the jim bain letter right because uh uh in in the sunny universe there are no good ai uh i i don't like robots uh i don't uh and I don't really trust them. So uh, that sort of that ethos kind of infuses the whole the whole series. And whenever I've written one of these stories for the Bane anthologies, I figured, hey, they may as well go with the books that I'm writing, you know, pull double duty since I've done, I think I've done eight anthologies now with Bane. This is number five, but I'm, I'm working on eight. Uh, and so I've been trying to find ways to work with each of the themes that Tony or Hank or Tony have given, uh, given me for the books to find a way to make a story fit in that universe. And the only way to do that was to make the, was to make the tank uh, thing a bad guy um, because all of our all sort of cyborg battle machines in the books are, are not, uh, not on the good guy's side. And so it's a pretty straightforward story. It just sort of got the script flipped for most of the stories in the book, which we also, I, and I talked, I ran this by Tony when we started, you know, it was sort of the idea you know, because uh, you want some curveballs, right? When we talked about Wen's story, you know, coming out of left field, and mine came out of, uh, I guess, right field. Uh, you know, uh, the other, you know, the other end of of, of, uh, of things. And so it's a pretty straightforward story, though. Uh, it's about a sort of crack team of Imperial Legioners uh, who are uh, dropped behind enemy lines. This planet has been ruined by the aliens that we're fighting in Sunny Universe, the Cielsen, who are kind of space uh space mongolians that you know they'll, they'll sack a city and they'll run away uh you know back to wherever it is they come from and they'll raid and raid and raid and so they're trying to rescue the uh the countess who's a very uh, young child who rules this planet because if they're going to try and get the planet back together of course they want the uh person who owns the planet uh you know feudalism being what it is and they're trying to get out with her uh but it's just a couple guys against this huge uh, sort of, and it's not quite a tank. It's got a little bit more in common with the walkers, the tripods from War of the Worlds, right? It's a big kind of spider thing, but it has a giant gun turret. So, you know, we're not too far removed. And uh, they have to figure out how to deal with it while just being a bunch of guys on the ground. And I, I like to write big action sequences and it's basically the whole story is one big action sequence. So uh, it doesn't, you know, it fits in the, the frame of the anthology, but as I say, with the script flipped. Mm -hmm. 
It's a great story of, of, of a somewhat spoiled and naive young uh, noble per uh, person um, also who um, is spoiled, but she's got promise. And I don't know if anybody's ever written anything like that before. Um, <laughs> thousands of people, Prince I'm sure. Roger something, I don't know. But uh, it, it has that, that sort of feel to it that... Um, that this girl is is coming of age along and this centurion is a father-like figure or a brother figure that's that's protecting her and at the same time demanding more of her than's ever been demanded before it's really cool in that way and she's yeah. the one that changes in the story right yeah yeah well she is sort of expecting some sort of superhero you know storybook knight to rescue her and she's got a bunch of grunts basically right and, and she's disappointed because she's a kid uh, but she, you know, she learns to sort of deal with it, right, and, and to recognize, like, ordinary heroism, and that's sort of an underpinning of the story as well, um, you know, against the background of blowing things up, which, uh, you know, if you're going to put a tank on the cover, you should do. Uh, blow something up. Absolutely. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. <laughs> we blow a lot <laughs> People of what they want. Yeah. <laughs> I once wrote an Honor Harrington novel that didn't have a single exploding starship in it, oh. and Tony said, how will they know it's your book? <laughs> they'll think you've got someone ghosted for well you. that that is the entire reason why in the um in uh what is it uh field of dishonor i think why we have the simulation in the, in the beginning of the book because that's where i blow up the starships because that's where the jag is examining everybody's behavior and then i go wait and don't blow up another starship she was like this won't work. There's no exploding starships. <laughs> Tony, uh, Tony really likes her exploding starships. You yeah. know, yes. We start every yes. every convention presentation with one, right? So. Yes. <laughs> oh man. And now we bring you part two of the audio dramatization of Eric Flint's Islands, adapted by Tony Daniel. I am Luke of Elephonesis, the aide-de-camp and manservant to Calipodius Serenites, a captain in the Roman army of General Belisarius, and a son of the wealthy Serenites clan of Constantinople. Captain Calipodius was blinded by an enemy mortar at the age of 18. He believed his life was over, and so it might have been were it not for General Belisarius. We Romans were at war with the Malwa, a fanatical cult mostly from the Punjabi region, who had been subverted by a malevolent being from the future. That fact didn't matter so much to the captain at present, however. You see, he had recently received word that his wife Anna was on her way to find him at the front. And since they had not parted on the best of terms, he was not at all certain what Anna had in mind. Ah, that's all of them, Brother Ellis. What a pile of idiots we have here. All right, Abdul, do you still have your bottle of Greek fire? Never leave home without it. Good, now let's burn the bodies. Katomanes, bring me that torch, will you? Here you go, brother. Thanks. Wait. Yes, girl? Should we say something? Say something? It is just, they were living less than an hour ago. Now we are burning them. Mm, silly looking, aren't they? 
Dead men. It could have been you. They'd have left you for the crows. I know that. Best get used to the sight of death, girl. You'll see plenty more where you're going. And where are we going? Jarex is the next place. I hesitate to call it a town. Very well. Help me load this on their boat. If I'm paying you half my coin and jewels, I hope you will at least not object to a bit of heavy lifting. <laughs> Do we like her? She's got spirit. And her husband has cash. That he does, brother. That he does. We must have traveled miles, but I can still see the plume of smoke from their burning. Greek fire is a marvelous invention, Lady Salonitis. No one will care in these parts. It's a common enough sight. I'm not worried about that. So why the frown? Look at us. Happy men rowing right back toward the most dangerous place in the world. It's just... he may hate me. I gave him reason enough. Weird world it is. What a woman will go through to find her husband. When I set out, I, I believed I was coming to ask for a divorce. Really? Is that permitted among your sort? It is rare, but yes, it is permitted. You say you believed you were coming for that reason? I don't hate him. This was never about him. It still isn't. Yet you are traveling into the mouth of war to find him. Yes. As you say, a weird world. But one in which a man must still row if he wants to get anywhere. Waiting for three ori for a simple stall. And you permit. wait for three more until the magistrate Meanwhile, is ready for the you. The rich of Charax buy their way in and go before. Of course, me. what do you expect? Damn it, woman, make all of our lives easier. Return to your seat and wait to be called, will wait you? Wait to be called, wait to be called, he says. A person could live her life and die waiting to be called around here. I can't. I simply can't. Lady Saranites, if I permit you to continue on this, this headstrong project of yours, it would bring my career to an end. This is from your father, demanding that you be returned to Constantinople under guard. My father has no authority over me. No, he doesn't. But your husband Calipodius does. Without his authorization, I cannot allow you to continue. I see. And I certainly cannot authorize a ship to carry you forward to Barbaricum. But my husband is far up the Indus. A letter will take weeks now that the winter monsoon season has started. <laughs> I see you have become acquainted with the beastly weather in these parts. Barbaricum is the next town with a telegraph. 
permission could be obtained within moments from there. I agree. There is no telegraph here, and it will be some time before the new radio system is working. Nevertheless, you must wait here in Charax for an answer. Allow me to go as far as Chabahari. I would at least be in India. And I would not be in your office every day, Magistrate. <sighs> True. But Anna Saranites, he is not likely to agree, you know. He's my husband, not yours. You don't know how he thinks. True enough. Chabahari Magistrate? And what about you, Isaurian, and these two men? Can I trust you to keep her safe? If it's worth your career, sir, just imagine the price we'd pay. Oh, very well. Chabahari. Fifty for this fine young thing. She'll make an excellent lady's maid. Step up there, girl. Thirty-five! Come now, I'm sure a gentleman could find something to do with her as well. (laughs) Forty! Figs! Figs! Ripe and juicy figs! Figs for the fine lady from the west? I don't want any figs, Vendor. What I want is to find whoever is in charge of this place. The market, your ladyship? No, the town. Chabahari. (laughs) Your guess is as good as mine, lady. Keep a civil tongue, Vendor, or I'll cut it out. Truly. Chabahari didn't exist six months ago. But you might try the military hospital. Lots of Roman soldiers there. Bad place, though. Let's go, Illis. You've never seen such a place, girl. You can't imagine how horrible it can be, the suffering. Nothing could be worse than standing around in this heat. You might consider wearing something a little less... Like a decorated gazebo? As you say, girl. But I imagine you'd peel like a grape with your fair skin. My skin will toughen like anyone else's would, Illis. But first things first. You'll shut up if you know what's good for you. I won't let them. I won't let them take the other way. And how will you stop them, cripple? Don't worry. The saw gets sharpened at least once a week. (laughs) To hell with you. (laughs) To hell. It is hell, my friend. Angel. Angel. What in God's name? Who are you? I'm looking for whoever is in charge. (laughs) That's a good one. (laughs) I'd answer the lady if I were you. I'm no doctor, but I promise you that I can find the artery in your neck with this sword. Let him go, Ellis. As you say. Chief Medical Officer's in the office over there. Drunk as usual. Come on, Ellis. Water, angel, bring us water. God, it smells like... Ellis, do they not have bedpans and latrines in this place? Bedpans? I suppose they share one for 40 men. The barrel over there is the latrine. And that... It's the smell of flesh rotting, isn't it? I warned you, girl. This is a Roman hospital. There are regulations. (laughs) Regulations? What regulations? Sanitary regulations. Perhaps she is an angel, as the man says. 
a creature of beauty that has never set its dainty foot on earth. Damn it, there have to be regulations for a hospital. Don't you people read anything besides those damn dispatches? No one does. No soldier, anyway. Have you ever tried to read the official regulation? No, I suppose I haven't. But I have read Lady Macronbolatisa. I know about the new medical knowledge. This place is appalling. And it doesn't have to be this way. Knowing and doing are two different things, oh, girl. Angel, please touch me. I know you can heal me, please. Hands away, you! No. No, Illus. It won't do any good, my touch. You have to know that. Just a touch. One touch, my angel. Oh, very well. At least I can wipe the sweat from your brow. There. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Katanamis, go and fetch this man some water. Me? Yes, you. And bring... Good God, see if you can find any clean cloth. This man's bandages are crawling with maggots. Yes, lady, I'll get it. We could be stuck in this hellhole of a town for weeks. Are you going to save every one of them, girl? This is what a rear area hospital looks like. There are plenty others like it. Then this is as good a place to start as any. Start? Start what? Do any of you have an objection to working in trade? Objections? We're not senators, girl. Fine. You'll have to work on speculation, though. I'll need the money I have left to pay the others. What others? Speak sense, girl. I believe you call them the muscle. Your ladyship, we are the muscle. Not anymore. You three are now officers in the hospital service. The hospital service? We'll call it Calipodius's wife's service. How about that? Girl, what in hell are you talking about? You'll see. Come on. Let's find that drunken commandant and get started. Calipodius's wife's service. What a mouthful. But that was the name, and the name stuck. The dozen or so walking wounded that Anna recruited in the next hours, the muscle, as Lady Serenites put it, had no trouble believing that Illus was a Kiliark and Katamanes and Abdul, two tribunes of a new army service they'd never heard of. They believed because they were veterans of war themselves and recognized Illus and the others for what they were. They knew that General Belisarius promoted without regard to station in life, and so the fact that Abdul was a black man did not faze them. And that is how what began as the fancy of an 18-year-old girl on that day, became very real. Oh yes, real enough when the muscle beat the first surgeon into a bloody pulp after he refused to follow Anna's directions to boil his instruments after use, and when he made an unhelpful comment about meddling women. The next day, two more surgeons complained to the commandant. That night, Anna allowed her servicemen to beat those surgeons into a still bloodier pulp. (laughs) She may be a new sort of woman, but she was still a Roman noble. All complaints to the commandant ceased thereafter. Neither did the attendants say a word when they were ordered to dig real latrines away from the hospital tents and to help the immobilized soldiers use them whenever they asked. (sighs) Yes... The wife's service, born in a charnel house of a hospital in Chabahari.
This is quite some message from your wife, Captain Serenites. I know, General. I knew you were married. Now tell me the personal details. General Belisarius, I... Be at ease, young man. I can spare the time for this. In truth, I would enjoy it. War is a means, not an end. It would do my soul good to talk about ends for a while. I really don't know her very well, sir. We'd only been married a short time before I left to join your army. It was... A marriage of convenience. Your wife is from the Melissini family. Yes. Illustrious. But a family that has fallen on hard times financially. Especially after secretly conniving to assassinate the Empress. I didn't know about that. But like my father said, the Melissinis don't have a pot to piss in. Whereas my family, as you know... Immensely wealthy, but a questionable pedigree. Go back three generations, and we're commoners. The Roman aristocracy will overlook a lot if a family is rich. Especially if they turn out a progeny such as you, extremely well-educated. I wonder when dealing with grammar and rhetoric. Yes, I can drop three Homeric and Biblical allusions into every sentence. But you don't do that with your dispatches. I want everyone to be able to understand them. They've made you famous, boy. And justly so. But let's get back to the problem at hand. The Melissini barely escaped with their lives after the assassination plot was thwarted. If they'd covered their tracks a little less carefully, they'd all be dead, including the innocents such as your honor. But they did cover their tracks, and now the Empire needs the aristocracy to come together behind the throne. The Melissini bear great weight among the older families. The newer families support the Empress. And well we should. We wouldn't be where we are without her. And this new technology, it has made us all yet another fortune. Exactly. So you see, the match between you and Anna has great political importance. You, Serenites, get ancient blood added to your line, and the Melissini get... I suppose your father quietly provided Anna's dowry and much more? He did. He saved the Melissini from the poorhouse. And how did the Melissini react to all this? Not gracefully. Anna's mother barely tried to disguise her contempt for me and my family. And Anna? Anna was... She was practically raised by the abbess at the Melissini's teaching convent. From what I could tell, she seemed quite pretty. So I was satisfied. I had known since I was a boy that I would be in an arranged marriage. I was seventeen, General. You were a boy, now you are a man. (laughs) Quite a difference a year can make, Captain. Yes, sir. Why is she doing this, Calipodius? She was so angry at me when I told her I was going off to war. It wasn't because she cared about me. In fact, I think she hated me by then. If she hated you, lad... She wouldn't be going to this great length to get to you. What do you want me to do? It's time you put that splendid mind of yours to work on something more important than war. I suggest you think about it. There's a grammar and rhetoric to marriage, too, you know. Should I truly tell her to come here? To this island? To the Iron Triangle? No, no. Commanding her won't work. She'll disobey on principle. Send Dryopis a letter saying your wife has permission to travel wherever she wishes and to make her own decision. And then, Calipodius, 
You tell her to do whatever she wants. And so I am writing to allow you to... to give you my permission to either come or go... Anna, I hereby... Damn it, Luke. Crumple that up, will you? Right away, sir. Do you have a fresh sheet? Yes, sir. Right. Right. Write this. Do as you will, Anna. For myself, I would like to see you again. Very good, sir. Very good. Orderly, see to this man's bandage, and be sure to use the boiled linen from the sterilization cabinet when you do it. Yes, your ladyship. Right away. Illis, how are the new tents coming? We've got the fabric in. We're waiting on the stakes. I've sent Katomanis and Abdul to find out what the holdup is. <laughs> we should have the stakes very soon, then. And that new set of latrines? The men are digging them right now, 50 paces away from the hospital. Excellent. Excellent. We need more boiling pots. We have instruments and bandages waiting in line as it is. I'll see to it. What else? What else? This arrived, girl. What? What is it? It's a letter. From who? What am I supposed to do with this? Open it. All right. It's from him. Is it now? He says... He says... What does he say, girl? He says for me to do what I want. <laughs> a man who knows how to bend to necessity. He says he would like to see me. A husband wants to see his wife. Does it surprise you, girl? Yes, considering. And what will we do? We? Yes, we, girl. I can leave Zeno in charge here. He's proven himself very able. True enough. Especially after you saved his leg from the saw. Well, what do you call it? Make him higher in station? Promote him? Yes, we'll make him a tribune. In the wife's service. Do you think anyone will take it seriously, Illis? Are you joking, girl? Everyone here is both terrified and in awe of you. They think you have holy powers. I understand sterilization techniques, that's and all. And they don't. I'm afraid you've become the next thing to a saint in these parts. Then we'd better go, hadn't we? Besides, there's a telegraph in Barbaricum. I'll be needing that. All right. Read it to me. Sir, I'd rather not. Maybe you want to take it to your quarters and... Oh, for God's sake, man. Luke, take the telegraph from him and read it to me. Very good, sir. She says, <clears throat> Address medical care and sanitation in next dispatch to the Senate. Stop. Firmly stop. She's right. God, I'm an idiot. We both are. General, how long have you been standing there? Long enough. We've maintained proper medical and sanitation procedures here in the Triangle, sure enough, but... She must have passed through the invasion staging post. Garrison troops, garrison officers with the local butchers as the so-called surgeons. I will write out the orders immediately. Do so. I'll give you some choice words to include. What do you think? Should we resurrect crucifixion? Perhaps we should make the punishment fit the crime. 
Surgeons who do not boil their instruments will be boiled alive. Officers who do not dig proper latrines will be buried alive. You do have a way with words, lad. Yes, that's the ticket. And that wife of yours, she's quite something, isn't she? You two might be made for one another after all. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks, as always, to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Praise, thanks, and gratitude to Tony Daniel, Christopher Rocchio, David Weber, Wynn Spencer, and Lou Berger for sitting down to talk with me about World Breakers today. And thanks, of course, to our regular host, Mr. Tony Daniel, not only for letting me sit in this week, but for taking the time out to talk about World Breakers. He has been busy in his garage. He's got this GMC Sierra and he has got it fully loaded. He's been working on it a lot. Here, let me read you what it's got. Rancho shocks, locking rear differentials, underbody skid plates, heavy duty air filter, dual exhaust system, and a custom two-speed transfer case with a granny gear. He put in an eight inch aftermarket lift package and for tires, 38 inch Baja claws. Wow, what a sweet ride. I wonder what the inspiration for it was. Anyway, this has been David F. Shirod coming to you from a soundproof bunker deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.